4. While in some fruits it is present in more or less dilute form, sweet peaches, apples, grapes, contain a moderate amount of sugar, watermelons, pears, etc. contain less. Most of our carbohydrates are of plant origin, being found in vegetables, fruits, cereals, and syrups. Carbohydrates, whether of the starch group or the sugar group, are composed chiefly of three elements, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. They are therefore combustible, and are great energy producers. On the other hand, they are worthless for cell growth and repair. And if we limited our diet to carbohydrates, we should be like a man who had fuel but no engine capable of using it. 62. The fats. The best known fats are butter, lard, olive oil, and the fats of meats, cheese, and chocolate. When we test fats for fuel values by means of a calorimeter figure 26, we find that they yield twice as much heat as the carbohydrates, but that they burn out more quickly. Dwellers in cold climates must constantly eat large quantities of fatty foods if they are to keep their bodies warm and survive the extreme cold. Cod liver oil is an excellent food medicine, and if taken in winter serves to warm the body and to protect it against the rigors of cold weather. The average person avoids fatty foods in summer, knowing from experience that rich foods make him warm and uncomfortable. The harder we work and the colder the weather, the more food of that kind do we require. It is said that a lumberman doing heavy out-of-door work in cold climates needs three times as much food as a city clerk. Most of our fats, like lard and butter, are of animal origin, some of them. However, like olive oil, peanut butter, and coconut oil, are of plant origin. Illustration, figure 27, is the amount of fat necessary to make one calorie, is the amount of sugar or protein necessary to make one calorie. 63. The proteids. The proteids are the building foods, furnishing muscle, bone, skin cells, etc. and supplying blood and other bodily fluids. The best known proteids are white of egg, curd of milk, and lean of fish and meat. Peas and beans have an abundant supply of this substance, and nuts are rich in it. Most of our proteids are of animal origin, but some protein material is also found in the vegetable world. This class of foods contains carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen, and in addition, Two substances not found in carbohydrates or fats namely, sulfur and nitrogen. Proteids always contain nitrogen, and hence they are frequently spoken of as nitrogenous foods. Since the proteids contain all the elements found in the two other classes of foods, they are able to contribute, if necessary, to the store of bodily energy, but their main function is upbuilding, and the diet should be chosen so that the proteids do not have a double task. For an average man 4 ounces of dry proteid matter daily will suffice to keep the body cells in normal condition. It has been estimated that area code 300000000 blood cells alone need daily repair or renewal. When we consider that the blood is but one part of the body, and that all organs and fluids have corresponding requirements, we realize how vast is the work to be done by the food which we eat. 64. Mistakes in Buying the body demands a daily ration of the three classes of foodstuffs, but it is for us to determine from what meats, vegetables, fruits, cereals, etc. This supply shall be obtained figures 28 and 29. Illustration, figure 29. Diagram showing the difference in the cost of three foods which give about the same amount of nutrition each. Generally speaking, meats are the most expensive foods we can purchase, and hence should be bought seldom and in small quantities. Their place can be taken by beans, peas, potatoes, 
etc. and at less than a quarter of the cost, the average American family eats meat three times a day, while the average family of the more conservative and older countries rarely eats meat more than once a day. The following tables indicate the financial loss arising from an unwise selection of foods. Food consumed one week family number one family number two 20 loaves of bread 1.00 15 pounds flour. Bread 10 to 12 pounds loin steak homemade skin milk used.45 or meat of similar cost 2.00 yeast. Shortening. And 20 to 25 pounds rib roast skin milk.10 or similar meat 4.40 10 pounds steak round. Hamburger 4 pounds high priced cereal and some loin 1.50 breakfast food. 20C.80 10 pounds other meats. Boiling cake and pastry purchased 3.00 pieces. Rump roast. Etc. 1.008 pounds butter. 30C 2.405 pounds cheese. 16C.80 tea. Coffee. Spices. Etc. 75 5 pounds oatmeal bulk. 15 mushrooms. 75 5 pounds beans. 25 celery. 1.00 homemade cake and pastry. 1.00 oranges. 2.006 pounds butter. 30C 1.80 potatoes. 25 3 pounds homemade shortening. 25 miscellaneous canned goods. 2.00 tea. Coffee. And spices. 40 milk. 50 apples. 50 miscellaneous foods. 2.00 prunes. 25 3 dozen eggs. 60 potatoes. 25 milk. 1.00 23.45 miscellaneous foods. 1.00 dozen eggs. 60 11.30. The tables show that one family spends over twice as much in the purchase of foods as the other family. And yet the one whose food costs the less actually secures the larger amount of nutritive material and is better fed than the family where more money is expended. From human foods. Snyder. The source of the different foods. All of our food comes from either the plant world or the animal world. Broadly speaking. Plants furnish the carbohydrates. That island starch and sugar. Animals furnish the fats and proteids. But although vegetable foods yield carbohydrates mainly. Some of them like beans and peas, contain large quantities of protein and can be substituted for meat without disadvantage to the body. Other plant products, such as nuts, have fat as their most abundant food constituent. The peanut, for example, contains 43 of fat, 30 of proteids, and only 17 of carbohydrates. The Brazil nut has 65 of fat, 17 of proteids, and only 9 of carbohydrates. Nuts make a good meat substitute. And since they contain a fair amount of carbohydrates besides the fats and proteins, they supply all of the essential food constituents and form a well-balanced food. Chapter VI Water 65 Destructive Action of Water The action of water in stream and sea, in springs and wells, is evident to all, but the activity of groundwater that island rainwater which sinks into the soil and remains there is little known in general. The real activity of groundwater is due to its great solvent power, Every time we put sugar into tea or soap into water we are using water as a solvent. When rain falls, it dissolves substances floating in the atmosphere. And when it sinks into the ground and becomes groundwater, it dissolves material out of the rock which it encounters. Figure 30. We know that water contains some mineral matter. Because kettles in which water is boiled acquire in a short time a crust or coating on the inside. This crust is due to the accumulation in the kettle of mineral matter which was in solution in the water but which was left behind when the water evaporated. See section 25. The amount of dissolved mineral matter present in some wells and springs is surprisingly great, the famous springs of Bath, England, 
contains so much mineral matter in solution, that a column 9 feet in diameter and 140 feet high could be built out of the mineral matter contained in the water consumed yearly by the townspeople. Rocks and minerals are not all equally soluble in water, some are so little soluble that it is years before any change becomes apparent, and the substances are said to be insoluble, yet in reality they are slowly dissolving. Other rocks, like limestone, are so readily soluble in water that from the small pores and cavities eaten out by the water, there may develop in long centuries. Caves and caverns figure 30. Most rock, like granite, contains several substances, some of which are readily soluble and others of which are not readily soluble. In such rocks a peculiar appearance is presented, due to the rapid disappearance of the soluble substance, and the persistence of the more resistant substance figure 31. We see that the solvent power of water is constantly causing changes, dissolving some mineral substances, and leaving others practically untouched, eating out crevices of various shapes and sizes, and by gradual solution through a numbered years enlarging these crevices into wonderful caves, such as the Mammoth Cave of Kentucky. 66. Constructive Action of Water. Water does not always act as a destructive agent, while it breaks down in one place it builds up in another. It does this by means of precipitation. Water dissolves salt, and also dissolves lead nitrate. But if a salt solution is mixed with a lead nitrate solution, a solid white substance is formed in the water figure 32. This formation of a solid substance from the mingling of two liquids is called precipitation. Such a process occurs daily in the rocks beneath the surface of the earth. See Laboratory Manual. Suppose water from different sources enters a crack in a rock, bringing different substances in solution, then the mingling of the waters may cause precipitation, and the solid thus formed will be deposited in the crack and fill it up. Hence, while groundwater tends to make rock porous and weak by dissolving out of it large quantities of mineral matter, it also tends under other conditions to make it more compact because it deposits in cracks, crevices, and pours the mineral matter precipitated from solution. These two forces are constantly at work, in some places the destructive action is more prominent, in other places the constructive action, but always the result is to change the character of the original substance. When the mineral matter precipitated from the solutions is deposited in cracks, veins are formed figure 33 which may consist of the ore of different metals, such as gold, silver, copper, lead, etc. Man is almost entirely dependent upon these veins for the supply of metal needed in the various industries, because in the original condition of the rocks, the metallic substances are so scattered that they cannot be profitably extracted. Naturally, the veins themselves are not composed of one substance alone, because several different precipitates may be formed but there is a decided grouping of valuable metals, and these can then be readily separated by means of electricity. 67. Streams. Streams usually carry mud and sand along with them, this is particularly well seen after a storm when rivers and brooks are muddy. The puddles which collect at the foot of a hill after a storm are muddy because of the particles of soil gathered by the water as it runs down the hill. The particles are not dissolved in the water, but are held there in suspension, as we call it technically. The river made muddy after a storm by suspended particles usually becomes clear and transparent after it has traveled onward for miles, because, as it travels, the particles drop to the bottom and are deposited there. Hence, materials suspended in the water are borne along and deposited at various places. Figure 34. The amount of deposition by large rivers is so great that in some places channels fill up and must be dredged annually. 
and vessels are sometimes caught in the deposit and have to be towed away. Running water in the form of streams and rivers, by carrying sand particles, stones, and rocks from high slopes and depositing them at lower levels, wears away land at one place and builds it up at another, and never ceases in its work of changing the nature of the Earth's surface. Figure 35, 68. Relation of water to human life. Water is one of the most essential of food materials, and whether we drink much or little water, we nevertheless get a great deal of it. The larger part of many of our foods is composed of water, more than half of the weight of the meat we eat is made up of water, and vegetables are often more than nine-tenths water. See Laboratory Manual. Asparagus and tomatoes have over 90% of water, and most fruits are more than three-fourths water, even bread, which contains as little water as any of our common foods is about one-third water figure 36, without water, solid food material, although present in the body, would not be in a condition suitable for bodily use, an abundant supply of water enables the food to be dissolved or suspended in it, and in solution the food material is easily distributed to all parts of the body, further, water assists in the removal of the daily bodily wastes, and thus rids the system of foul and poisonous substances, the human body itself consists largely of water, indeed, about two-thirds of our own weight is water, the constant replenishing of this large quantity is necessary to life, and a considerable amount of the necessary supply is furnished by foods, particularly the fruits and vegetables, but while the supply furnished by the daily food is considerable, it is by no means sufficient, and should be supplemented by good drinking water. 69. Water and its dangers. Our drinking water comes from far and near, and as it moves from place to place, it carries with it in solution or suspension anything which it can find, whether it be animal, vegetable, or mineral matter. The power of water to gather up matter is so great that the average drinking water contains 20 to 90 grains of solid matter per gallon, that island if a gallon of ordinary drinking water is left to evaporate, a residue of 20 to 90 grains will be left. See Laboratory Manual. As water runs down a hill slope figure 37. It carries with it the filth gathered from acres of land, carries with it the refuse of stable, barn, and kitchen, and too often this impure surface water joins the streams which supply our cities, lakes and rivers which furnish drinking water should be carefully protected from surface draining, that island from water which has flowed over the land and has thus accumulated the waste of pasture and stable and, it may be, of dumping ground. It is not necessary that water should be absolutely free from all foreign substances in order to be safe for daily use in drinking, a limited amount of mineral matter is not injurious and may sometimes be really beneficial. It is the presence of animal and vegetable matter that causes real danger, and it is known that typhoid fever is due largely to such impurities present in the drinking water. 70. Methods of Purification Water is improved by any of the following methods, boiling. The heat of boiling destroys animal and vegetable germs, hence water that has been boiled a few minutes is safe to use. This is the most practical method of purification in the home, and is very efficient. The boiled water should be kept in clean, corked bottles, otherwise foreign substances from the atmosphere re-enter the water, and the advantage gained from boiling is lost. Distillation. By this method pure water is obtained but this method of purification cannot be used conveniently in the home section 25. Filtration. Infiltration. The water is forced through porcelain or other porous substances which allow the passage of water, but which hold back the minute foreign particles suspended in the water. See Laboratory Manual. The filters used in ordinary dwellings are of stone, 
asbestos, or charcoal. They are often valueless, because they soon become choked and cannot be properly cleaned. The filtration plants owned and operated by large cities are usually safe. There is careful supervision of the filters, and frequent and effective cleanings are made. In many cities the filtration system is so good that private care of the water supply is unnecessary. 71. The source of water. In the beginning, the earth was stored with water just as it was with metal, rock, etc. Some of the water gradually took the form of rivers, lakes, streams, and wells, as now. And it is this original supply of water which furnishes us all that we have today. We quarry to obtain stone and marble for building, and we fashion the earth's treasures into forms of our own. But we cannot create these things. We bore into the ground and drill wells in order to obtain water from hidden sources. We utilize rapidly flowing streams to drive the wheels of commerce. But the total amount of water remains practically unchanged. The water which flows on the earth is constantly changing its form. The heat of the sun causes it to evaporate, or to become vapor, and to mingle with the atmosphere. In time, the vapor cools, condenses, and falls as snow or rain. The water which is thus returned to the earth feeds our rivers, lakes, springs, and wells, and these in turn supply water to man. When water falls upon a field, it soaks into the ground, or collects in puddles which slowly evaporate, or it runs off and drains into small streams or into rivers. That which soaks into the ground is the most valuable because it remains on the earth longest and is the purest. Water which soaks into the ground moves slowly downward and after a longer or shorter journey, meets with a non-porous layer of rock through which it cannot pass, and which effectually hinders its downward passage. In such regions, there is an accumulation of water, and a well dug there would have an abundant supply of water. The non-porous layer is rarely level, and hence the water whose vertical path is obstructed does not back up on the soil, but flows downhill parallel with the obstructing non-porous layer and in some distant region makes an outlet for itself, forming a spring figure 38. The streams originating in the springs flow through the land and eventually join larger streams or rivers, from the surface of streams and rivers evaporation occurs, the water once more becomes vapor and passes into the atmosphere, where it is condensed and again falls to the earth. Water which has filtered through many feet of earth is far purer and safer than that which fell directly into the rivers or which ran off from the land and joined the surface streams without passing through the soil. 72. The Composition of Water Water was long thought to be a simple substance, but toward the end of the 18th century it was found to consist of two quite different substances, oxygen O and hydrogen H. If we send an electric current through water acidulated to make it a good conductor, as shown in figure 39, we see bubbles of gas rising from the end of the wire by which the current enters the water and other bubbles of gas rising from the end of the wire by which the current leaves the water. These gases have evidently come from the water and are the substances of which it is composed, because the water begins to disappear as the gases are formed. If we place over each end of the wire an inverted jar filled with water, the gases are easily collected. The first thing we notice is that there is always twice as much of one gas as of the other, that island water is composed of two substances one of which is always present in twice as large quantities as the other. 73. The Composition of Water On testing the gases into which water is broken up by an electric current, we find them to be quite different. One proves to be oxygen, a substance with which we are already familiar. The other gas, hydrogen, is new to us and is interesting as being the lightest known substance, being even lighter than a feather. 
An important fact about hydrogen is that in burning it gives as much heat as five times its weight of coal. Its flame is blue and almost invisible by daylight, but intensely hot. If fine platinum wire is placed in an ordinary gas flame, it does not melt, but if placed in a flame of burning hydrogen, it melts very quickly. 74. How to prepare hydrogen? There are many different methods of preparing hydrogen, but the easiest laboratory method is to pour sulfuric acid, or hydrochloric acid, on zinc shavings and to collect in a bottle the gas which is given off. This gas proves to be colorless, tasteless, and odorless. See Laboratory Manual, Chapter VII Air 75, The Instability of the Air. We are usually not conscious of the air around us, but sometimes we realize that the air is heavy, while at other times we feel the bracing effect of the atmosphere. We live in an ocean of air as truly as fish inhabit an ocean of water. If you have ever been at the seashore you know that the ocean is never still for a second. Sometimes the waves surge back and forth in angry fury. At other times the waves glide gently into the shore and the surface is as smooth as glass, but we know that there is perpetual motion of the water even when the ocean is in its gentlest moods. Generally our atmosphere is quiet, and we are utterly unconscious of it. At other times we are painfully aware of it, because of its furious winds. Then again we are oppressed by it because of the vast quantity of vapor which it holds in the form of fog, or mist. The atmosphere around us is as restless and varying as is the water of the sea. The air at the top of a high tower is very different from the air at the base of the tower. Not only does the atmosphere vary greatly at different altitudes, but it varies at the same place from time to time. At one period being heavy and raw, at another being fresh and invigorating. Winds, temperature, and humidity all have a share in determining atmospheric conditions, and no one of these plays a small part. 76. The character of the air. The atmosphere which envelops us at all times extends more than 50 miles above us, its height being far greater than the greatest depths of the sea. This atmosphere varies from place to place, at the sea level it is heavy, on the mountain top less heavy, and far above the earth it is so light that it does not contain enough oxygen to permit man to live. Figure 40 illustrates by a pile of pillows how the pressure of the air varies from level to a level. Sea level is a low portion of the earth's surface. Hence at sea level there is a high column of air, and a heavy air pressure. As one passes from sea level to mountain top a gradual but steady decrease in the height of the air column occurs, and hence a gradual but definite lessening of the air pressure. 77. Air pressure. If an empty tube figure 41 is placed upright in water, the water will not rise in the tube, but if the tube is put in water and the air is then drawn out of the tube by the mouth, the water will rise in the tube figure 42. This is what happens when we take lemonade through a straw. When the air is withdrawn from the straw by the mouth, the pressure within the straw is reduced, and the liquid is forced up the straw by the air pressure on the surface of the liquid in the glass. Even the ancient Greeks and Romans knew that water would rise in a tube when the pressure within the tube was reduced, and hence they tried to obtain water from wells in this fashion, but the water could never be raised higher than 34 feet. Let us see why water could rise 34 feet and no more. If an empty pipe is placed in a cistern of water, the water in the pipe does not rise above the level of the water in the cistern. If, however, the pressure in the tube is removed, the water in the tube will rise to a height of 34 feet approximately. If now the air pressure in the tube is restored, the water in the tube sinks again to the level of that in the cistern. The air pressing on the liquid in the cistern tends to push some liquid up the tube, but the air pressing on the water in the tube pushes downwards, and tends to keep the liquid from rising and these two pressures balance each other, 
when, however, the pressure within the tube is reduced, the liquid rises because of the unbalanced pressure which acts on the water in the cistern. The column of water which can be raised this way is approximately 34 feet, sometimes a trifle more, sometimes a trifle less. If water were twice as heavy, just half as high a column could be supported by the atmosphere. Mercury is about 13 times as heavy as water and, therefore, the column of mercury supported by the atmosphere is about one thirteenth as high as the column of water supported by the atmosphere. This can easily be demonstrated. Fill a glass tube about a yard long with mercury. Close the open end with a finger, and quickly insert the end of the inverted tube in a dish of mercury figure 43. When the finger is removed, the mercury falls somewhat, leaving an empty space in the top of the tube. If we measure the column in the tube, we find its height is about one thirteenth of 34 feet or 30 inches, exactly what we should expect. Since there is no air pressure within the tube, the atmospheric pressure on the mercury in the dish is balanced solely by the mercury within the tube, that island by a column of mercury 30 inches high. The shortness of the mercury column as compared with that of water makes the mercury more convenient for both experimental and practical purposes. See Laboratory Manual. 78. The Barometer. Since the pressure of the air changes from time to time, the height of the mercury will change from day to day, and hour to hour. When the air pressure is heavy, the mercury will tend to be high. When the air pressure is low, the mercury will show a shorter column, and by reading the level of the mercury one can learn the pressure of the atmosphere. If a glass tube and dish of mercury are attached to a board and the dish of mercury is enclosed in a case for protection from moisture and dirt, and further if a scale of inches or centimeters is made on the upper portion of the board, we had a mercurial barometer figure 44. If the barometer is taken to the mountain top, the column of mercury falls gradually during the ascent, showing that as one ascends, the pressure decreases in agreement with the statement in section 76. Observations similar to these were made by Torricelli as early as the 16th century. Taking a barometric reading consists in measuring the height of the mercury column. 79. A portable barometer. The mercury barometer is large and inconvenient to carry from place to place, and a more portable form has been devised, known as the aneroid barometer figure 45. This form of barometer is extremely sensitive, indeed, it is so delicate that it shows the slight difference between the pressure at the tabletop and the pressure at the floor level, whereas the mercury barometer would indicate only a much greater variation in atmospheric pressure. The aneroid barometers are frequently made no larger than a watch and can be carried conveniently in the pocket, but they get out of order easily and must be frequently readjusted. The aneroid barometer is an airtight box whose top is made of a thin metallic disc which bends inward or outward according to the pressure of the atmosphere. If the atmospheric pressure increases, the thin disc is pushed slightly inward, if, on the other hand, the atmospheric pressure decreases. The pressure on the metallic disc decreases and the disc is not pressed so far inward. The motion of the disc is small, and it would be impossible to calculate changes in atmospheric pressure from the motion of the disc, without some mechanical device to make the slight changes in motion perceptible. In order to magnify the slight changes in the position of the disc, the thin face is connected with a system of levers, or wheels, which multiplies the changes in motion and communicates them to a pointer which moves around a graduated circular face. In figure 45 the real barometer is scarcely visible, being securely enclosed in a metal case for protection, the principle, however, can be understood by reference to figure 46, 80, the weight of the air, 
We have seen that the pressure of the atmosphere at any point is due to the weight of the air column which stretches from that point far up into the sky above. This weight varies slightly from time to time and from place to place, but it is equal to about 15 pounds to the square inches shown by actual measurement. It comes to us as a surprise sometimes that air actually has weight, for example, a mass of 12 cubic feet of air at average pressure weighs 1 pound, and the air in a large assembly hall weighs more than 1 ton. We are practically never conscious of this really enormous pressure of the atmosphere, which is exerted over every inch of our bodies, because the pressure is exerted equally over the outside and the inside of our bodies, the cells and tissues of our bodies containing gases under atmospheric pressure. If, however, the finger is placed over the open end of a tube and the air is sucked out of the tube by the mouth, the flesh of the finger bulges into the tube because the pressure within the finger is no longer equalized by the usual atmospheric pressure figure 47. Aeronauts have never ascended much higher than 7 miles, at that height the barometer stands at 7 inches instead of at 30 inches, and the internal pressure in cells and tissues is not balanced by unequal external pressure. The unequalized internal pressure forces the blood to the surface of the body and causes rupture of blood vessels and other physical difficulties. 81. Use of the barometer. Changes in air pressure are very closely connected with changes in the weather. The barometer does not directly foretell the weather, but a low or falling pressure, accompanied by a simultaneous fall of the mercury, usually precedes foul weather, while a rising pressure, accompanied by a simultaneous rise in the mercury, usually precedes fair weather. The barometer is not an infallible prophet, but it is of great assistance in predicting the general trend of the weather. There are certain changes in the barometer which follow no known laws, and which allow of no safe predictions. But on the other hand, general future conditions for a few days ahead can be fairly accurately determined. Figure 48 shows a barograph or self-registering barometer which automatically registers air pressure. Seaport towns in particular, but all cities, large or small, and villages too, are on request notified by the United States Weather Bureau 10 hours or more in advance of probable weather conditions, and in this way precautions are taken which annually save millions of dollars and hundreds of lives, I recall.